Okay, so if you have Bibles with you, if you would open up to Matthew chapter 5. I'll continue the series I've been preaching on the Beatitudes. This will be my fourth installment on that on this continuing series. I've said before, this is not in any way, shape, or form an exhaustive study on the Beatitudes. Um, these may be some of the most preached verses in all of the Bible. There's lots in there. There's lots that you can get out of it. This is just my take on what I see as this enormous, brilliant gem of Scripture. I'm sharing basically one facet of it. Um, I encourage you to do some personal study into the Beatitudes and see what facets of this God might want to reveal to you. The take I'm having um, as we approach this is what are the characteristics of citizens in God's kingdom? And I think uh, in the Beatitude, Jesus sets forth both the nature and the aspirations of those citizens. Um, we here at the bridge are, are learning those, characteristic, those character traits, those characteristics, and trying to build them more into our personal lives as we follow Jesus. Um, I've told you before that the word happy or blessed here um, is speaking about an internal condition, not an external condition. This is a happiness. This is a sense of being blessed, dependent upon what's going on inside of our hearts, not dependent upon the external circumstances of life. Isn't that a good thing? That's the word Jesus uses here. And today we'll look at the at the fourth beatitude, Matthew 5, 6, where it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. But first, let me just do a real quick review on the first three. I'd like to remind you. I'd like to tell you where we've gone and where we are and where we're going. So where we've been so far, quickly on the first three Beatitudes. The first one was, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor here speaks of the lowly beggar, the one who's crouched down low in humility. Being poor in spirit is recognizing that we have no spiritual assets, that we bring nothing to the table, that God brings everything to the table. To be poor in spirit is to recognize that we're spiritually bankrupt in and of ourselves. And it's, it's, it's liberating. It's extraordinarily freeing to understand that. It's not about how well we perform for God. He knew that we bring nothing to the table. And it's his great joy and delight to bring everything to the table. Everything is met. The whole table is set. Everything is on it. And he brought all of it. And he's invited us to that table. Coming with the mindset is, I have nothing to offer but me. That's that's what it means to be poor in spirit. And the scripture tells us that to people with that mindset, to, with that understanding, to them belong the kingdom of heaven. And I told you that the kingdom, any kingdom, encompasses the sphere of influence of a king. Our kingdom is God's kingdom. He's got a pretty large sphere of influence. It's pretty far-reaching. It's his dynamic rule. It's his reign over everything. His assertive authority over all things, over all of creation, even over the enemy. And his deeds. So the poor in spirit are recognized by the kingdom character trait of humility. Humility is a good deal. The second beatitude is, blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. And I took a little bit different take on this. 
To mourn here means to lament and to wail. It's a deep, deep emotional expression of mourning. It's not some kind of mild little tear running down your cheek kind of thing. This is from the core, from the depth of your being, a wailing. It's, it's an out-of-control uh, type of wailing. And universally, if you look at the commentary on this, they're referring this, um, this mourning as referring to um, the result of sin in our lives. But I've taken it a step further. I think they end just there because most commentaries, most approaches to Christianity are looking at um, a performance-based approach to faith. And I'm looking at it really different. Yes, I think this mourning is related to the sinful nature of man, but it's not because man has behaved badly that there's mourning, but because that sinful nature has severed relationship. The mourning is with the fact that our relationship with the Father who loves us extravagantly has been broken. So when there's this brokenness, and that's how I refer to this mourning here, a brokenness over the fact that relationship is broken. It's the grief, not only of our, the, the condition of our world, our nation, the church, the lost, or even our own cold, hardened hearts at times, but the mourning of the fact that um, the intimacy that the Father paid a great price to be restored between us and Him has somehow been severed. So there's this blessedness and brokenness. Psalm 51.7 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken heart, a broken and our broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you do not despise. The broken are humble and teachable. They're unoffendable. The broken are self-sufficient. They're, excuse me, they aren't self-sufficient. They aren't self-reliant. They aren't selfishly ambitious. Now, what is, what is the promise in the Beatitudes to those who are broken in this way? It says that they'll be comforted. And what... And the way I, I interpret that is that they will experience the embrace of God. What does it mean to be comforted? I, the word itself makes me think of grandma's blanket being wrapped around me, you know, you know, on a cold day, you know, and it just there's a comforting feeling with that. The promise and the beatitudes to those who are mourning over this broken relationship is that relationship is restored that they will be comforted by the comforter, that they will experience the embrace of God, that relationship will be restored. So those who mourn are recognized by the kingdom characteristic of brokenness. Last week we looked at blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. I told you that meek referred to a, a mildness of disposition, gentleness of spirit. Strong's Concordance adds an additional paragraph defining, describing meekness, and it says that it's a, a gentleness or meekness is the opposite of self-assertiveness and self-interest. It stems from trust in God's goodness and control over every situation. The gentle person is not preoccupied with the self at all. Eugene Peterson, in his take on, on this uh, beatitude, seems to capture it well in the message when he writes, you're blessed when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can be bought. One of my favorite Bible commentators is David Guzik. 
even though he tends to be a bit dispensational, I still like what he has his take on most of uh, most of Scripture. In his commentary in the Blue Letter Bible dialogue, he writes. Um, in the vocabulary of the ancient Greek language, the meek person is not passive or easily pushed around. The main idea behind the word meek was strength under control. Like a strong stallion that was trained to do the job instead of running wild. Kind of goes well with that idea of, of brokenness that I mentioned in the last uh, Beatitude. To be meek means to show a willingness to submit and work under proper, healthy, godly authority. <clears throat> it also shows a willingness to choose to disregard one's own rights or privileges. Vincent's word studies in the New Testament says of meekness, that Christian meekness is based on humility, which is not a natural quality, but an outgrowth of a renewed nature, and implies submission. And don't you know, that it's not in our human nature to be submissive. John Piper, a Christian, author, popular Christian author and theologian, defines meekness as the power to absorb adversity and criticism without lashing back. So the meek is submissive. And last week we looked at Psalm 37 and how it correlates, I believe, to Matthew 5, 6, and I gave you steps right throughout um, Psalm 37 to acquiring meekness. Um, all of those messages are online on our website. And you can uh, you can get them at thebridgelongisland.com. So within the first three Beatitudes, I summed it up this way. Kingdom citizens are characterized by being poor in spirit. They're humble. By being mournful, they're broken. They're yielding to the spirit. By being meek, they're submissive and not vengeful. I made a strong point last week of, of clarifying that they're submissive to godly, to holy, to healthy authority. Let me just interject here again, like I said last week. I'm of the opinion that no one has to submit to unholy, ungodly, unrighteous authority. I don't think anybody ever has to do that unless God tells you to. And, my, and there's two great examples for that. One is David. When Saul started chucking spears at David, David left Saul's house, right? He didn't pick up the spears and chuck them back, but he didn't stay there and wait to get hit with you know, a, better, a better throw the next time, right? When Saul became unhealthy, David left the house without attacking Saul. I think the other great example is Jesus. On the cross, Jesus was submitted to his father, now, sometimes when we submit to the Father, we have to put up with some very bad behavior by other people who are in authority, like Roman soldiers, or like the religious figures of the day. But that's because he was submitted to the Father's will. The rest of the New Testament is pretty clear that Jesus didn't put up with anything from the scribes and Pharisees. Though they were the religious authorities of the day, he let them have it, calling them whitewashed tombs filled with dead men's bones, flipping over the tables of the money changers, right? He didn't just submit to them when they did bad things or they had really bad theology because he said so. So I think both David and Jesus, David in the Old Testament, Jesus in the New Testament, are really good examples that we are to submit to godly authority of the Father. But we don't have to submit to ungodly human authority 
unless God tells us to remain in those situations for, for reasons we don't understand. Is that clear? I make that point. I strive um, to make that point clear because I know so many in the church have had bad experiences with some type of abusive leadership in the church. I've had, over the years, everywhere I've ever pastored, I've had people come to me wounded and hurt over that issue. So when I raise the, the issue, that, that dreaded S-word of submission, I try to clarify, hey, this is what I mean when I say it. Because most of us, we have a plug and play in the, in the middle of our brain, and when we hear that word, we think this means that. And I'm trying to offer uh, a better alternative a better approach, a clearer, I think a fuller understanding of what it means to submit. So kingdom citizens are characterized by being poor in spirit, they're humble by being mournful, they're broken by being meek, they're submissive. And to us belongs the kingdom of heaven, the comfort of God, and we'll inherit the earth. So let me read through the Beatitudes just for the sake of context, and then we'll take a look at the next one. So if you're in Matthew chapter 5, I'll begin at verse 1. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Lord, I thank you for your word, for the power and the truth that's in your word. I pray that you use me today to communicate your word with your life on it for your people. Amen? All right, so the fourth beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Well, let's, let's begin by taking a look at what some other commentators have to say on this. I told you David Guzik's one of my favorites. He, his comment on the word hunger is describing it as a profound hunger, one that cannot be satisfied by a snack, a longing that endures and is never complete, completely satisfied on this side of eternity. He's talking about a serious, crazy hunger. Anybody here ever experienced your blood sugar crashing? You ever had that experience where it's like, wham, it just kind of goes off the edge of the table, and it's like, you got to eat something. you got to eat something right now. I can, I can remember one experience back in our West Virginia days, and I was cutting the grass. And for whatever reason, I guess I hadn't eaten enough beforehand. It was really hot outside that day. Man, I get, I'm just about done cutting the grass on the side of our house, and bam, my blood sugar just drops off the edge of the table. They didn't have to get me something to eat and a couple of glasses of juice, just anything to get some electrolytes, get some glucose back in my system. I had to eat. And there was no stopping. There was a hunger that demanded to be satisfied, that demanded attention right then. I think that's a, a pretty good word picture of the intensity that's meant behind this word hunger here in, in this fourth beatitude. 
Another great classic Bible commentators, Jameson, Foster, and Brown, um, they comment on the word filled. It says, shall be filled, and it means it shall be saturated. It's not that it's gonna, it's not that you're gonna, you know, you're gonna carefully measure out to the last molecule what is the appropriate balance to just fill this container. It means to be completely saturated. Remember some um, months ago when I preached on, um, I, you know, I used the book He Loves Me by, by Wayne Jacobson as a, as a, you know, a basis for a ser- series of messages I did on Papa's affection. And we looked at uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, it says, See what great love the Father has lavished upon us. And I spent some time describing that word, lavish. And in the French, the word lavishé means to be completely and totally saturated, drenched uh, from head to, do- to toe. <laughs> Makes me think, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, when Nadine and I came back from uh, our West Coast trip, uh, that... Um, that, uh, that night, what was it, a Tuesday or a Wednesday night, Erica uh, graciously offered to pick us up at Kennedy Airport. It's 1130 at night. Well, that tropical storm had, was coming by. Um, between the time the plane landed, there was no rain. And by the time we got our bags and stepped outside, oh, my goodness, it's coming down in sheets. Okay, just to get from the terminal to her car, we were drenched. We were soaked through and through. I mean, every piece of clothing I had was completely drenched. That's lavishé. That's what it means, the, the great love that the Father has lavished upon us. That's also the same mindset, the same concept that's referring here to those who hunger and thirst in righteousness, that they will be filled. That's Keep that picture in mind. There's this great hunger that's matched by this great outpouring, this lavish satisfaction that drenches you to the bone. It's like somebody, it's like a little kid taking a container that's too big for them and tries to fill up a glass of milk and they fill up the whole glass and enough for three or four other glasses all over the table and down on the kitchen floor. That's the picture of being satisfied. God's not cheap. He's not just pouring out a little bit. It's abundanza. Remember there used to be a spaghetti commercial? Abundanza, it's abundance, okay? I came that you may have life have it abundantly, right? That's the kind of mindset of, of being filled here. John Piper, the theologian and author, he also equates this hunger and this thirst uh, to eternity. He quotes uh, Ecclesiastes 3.11. He says, And he has made everything beautiful in its time, and he has also set eternity in the hearts of men. So it's not just a satisfaction for now, it's an, a satisfaction for heaven, a satisfaction for eternity. Piper goes on to say, God has put eternity in our hearts, and we have an inconsolable longing. We try to satisfy it with scenic vacations, accomplishments of creativity, stunning cinematic productions, sexual exploits, national sports extravaganzas, hallucinogenic drugs, managerial excellence, and on and on and on. But still, this longing for eternity, this appetite, this hunger that God put in our hearts, it still remains. He references Isaiah and Jeremiah. Isaiah 55, 2 and 3, it says, Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen to me, and eat what's good. And your soul will delight in the riches of fare. 
Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your souls may live. Jeremiah says it this way in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Be appalled at this, O heaven, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Oh my goodness, what an incredible picture. We've been created with this hole, with this hunger that needs to be satisfied only by Him. And the two sins that, that Jeremiah is uh, rebuking the people over is they've, they've forsaken their first love, this spring of living water, and in its place they've tried to satisfy it with things of their own making. How sad. How incredibly sad. Here's a great quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Guys, we were made for another world. God created us to be satisfied by Him alone. Now, there are, there are earthly things that appropriately satisfy us, but there are spiritual things that only He can satisfy I've watched people try to have that God-sized void filled by other things. And I've watched a jealous God remove those other things from their lives. Just so that they would look at Him. He wants to fill that void. He alone wants to fill that void. It's kind of part of what my per- one of the aspects of my personal ethos. About living a supernatural life and the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm not content. To live an intellectual and academic faith only. I value those things, but I don't want to stop there. Because that doesn't satisfy me. I was telling um, Vaughn and Joanne a story um, earlier this morning. Yesterday I had some Jehovah Witnesses come to the door. And I had a dialogue with them. It had been a long time since I'd had Jehovah Witnesses come to the door. And so um, I wanted to engage them. And so... I didn't tell them I was a pastor and you know what my beliefs of faith were. That would have put me in a box that I didn't want to be put in at the moment. I wanted to engage them in a different way. And so I asked them, I said, look, I'm looking for a, a spiritual relationship with, with a deity that's going to be personal and interactive. Can you offer me that? And their response was to give me some of their publications, their Watchtower magazines. They gave me information. I said, and so they, and they explained the value of their publications. I was like, well, this is good. I said, you, you've given me information. I said, I think information is important. I have access to lots of information. I said, I can go online after you leave, and I can get all the information I possibly want. I said, but I want more than information. I said, I want to have an interaction, a personal interaction with a, with a, with a deity, with a spiritual being. Can you offer me that? Well, well, let me show you something in, in the Bible. And they opened the Bible and they, and they read a few verses to me. I said, well, I said, you know, I respect that, that um, ancient book. And um, there's, I, I know that there's great value in that. But really, you're, just, you're giving me more information, you know. But I re- what I really want is I want to have, I have this desire for an interaction, a spiritual interaction with, the, with some kind of higher power. Can you offer me that? I says, well, well, we have meetings on Sundays and and on Tuesday nights, and, and this is what we do there, I said, okay, 
And I listened, and they let, and I said, you guys are really good at communicating your position. I said, but I'm not sure if you're hearing me. You've offered me information, and you've offered me um, some type of a community association, you know, an institutional, you know, asso association to become part of. And I said, I can see value in both of those things, but that's not what I'm looking for. I want to have a personal interaction with a heavenly being, with a, with a deity that's greater than myself. I need to know that he actually cares about me. And it was like I was speaking another language to them. My, I have a desire in my heart for more than information. I have a great desire in my heart for more than institutional associations. I value both of those things, but I'm not completely satisfied with those things. There's a hunger that can only be satisfied by his presence. There's a hunger that can only be satisfied by interacting with him. And I think where we have it over, Jehovah Witnesses, is that we can actually offer that. Sadly, too much of the church doesn't even do as good a job as the Jehovah Witnesses are doing. They really know their stuff. They, they've got their, they got their spin down really, really well. But it doesn't satisfy I think it was somewhat effective for an earlier generation of Christianity, but it's not working today. And it certainly wasn't going to work with me. And it doesn't satisfy the hunger that's being referenced here in the Beatitudes. I am not content. Tom Zawacki is not content to live an intellectual and academic faith only. I want to live a supernatural life in the power of the Holy Spirit because he's made that available to me. There is a level of relationship that's accessible to us that I don't want to live underneath. Does that make sense? I think Peterson, again, in the, uh, in the message, is tracking well with his take on this beatitude as well. He says, you're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. His food and drink is the best meal you'll ever eat. He's getting it. This hunger and thirst for righteousness, again, it's not, about, it's not about performance. It's not about behavior. It's not a hunger and a thirst for performing perfectly so I may somehow declare myself righteous. It's a hunger and thirst for him, for his righteousness. So let's define some key words here. The hunger means to crave ardently, to seek with an eager desire. To thirst means those who painfully wait excuse me, painfully feel their want of and eagerly desire and long for those things by which the soul is refreshed, supported, and strengthened. Gives me that picture again of how my blood sugar crashed that day I was cutting the grass. Man, I needed something to drink right then. There was incredible thirst within me. It makes me think of that hunger I felt that day. This is not a lightweight thing. This is a deep, intense, passionate hunger and thirst. Vine's Extraordinary um, Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words looks at righteousness this way. It's the character or quality of being right or just. It was formerly spelt in the olden days as right wiseness, which clearly expresses the meaning. It's an attribute of God. It's the righteousness of God. It means essentially the same as his faithfulness or his truthfulness. That which is consistent with his own nature and promise. 
This is my take on righteousness. Righteousness is a uniquely divine quality. It's a foundational aspect of God's nature, and it's often linked to his justice. To be righteous, to have the quality of righteousness, means to be supernaturally synchronized and aligned with God's divine nature. That makes sense? To be righteous means to be synced up with God. It's a state of being where we're incapable. It's a state of being that we are incapable of attaining without divine help. We can't be righteous in and of ourselves. The scripture refers to our righteousness as filthy rags. That's the best that we have to offer. Our righteousness, the highest level we can attain, is filthy rags. So it's not something that we can do by performing well. I want you to be free. Listen to me, be free. You can't be righteous by yourself. You cannot, quote-unquote, be the perfect Christian and get the good housekeeping seal of righteousness stamped on you. That's not how it works. Righteousness, I liken to holiness. I'm holy because he's holy. It's his holiness when he touches me, when he impacts me, I become holy because he's holy. It's a relational thing. It's like marriage. I'm a Zawaki. I was born a Zawaki. Nadine married me. When she came into covenant relationship with me, she became a Zawaki. That's what it's like with God. God's holy. When I entered into covenant relationship with him, I took on his holiness because it's his nature and who he is in the same way Nadine took my name when we entered into covenant relationship. And she got my name because she's awesome. <laughs> she got my name because she loves me and I love her. We, were, we, we entered into covenant relationship based upon love, not based upon performance. Do you see the difference? Man, it's so important. I think that some have taken a look at the Beatitudes and have used it as a weapon to heap upon believers' shoulders rules and regulations that they were never meant to be saddled with. I think it's all about relationship. The word filled here. It's again, a very strong, very powerful and graphic word. It is, it, it, it is manifestly appropriate here as expressing the complete satisfaction of our spiritual thirst and hunger. When it says filled, it means really, really filled. It means completely filled. It means overwhelmingly filled. Just a few a few thoughts on righteousness. Boy, I got a lot of notes today. <laughs> of God's righteousness, the Word of God says that righteousness and justice are the foundations of His throne. They're foundational. Psalm eighty nine fourteen says, "Righteousness and justice are the foundations of Your throne. Love and faithfulness go before You." You see, we think of righteousness and justice as performance-based, but they are not separated from love and faithfulness, which are relationally based. Right? Scripture says of God's righteousness that His righteousness is like 
the mighty mountains, your justice like the great deep. O oh Lord, you preserve both man and beast. Isaiah 5.16 says, But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice, and the holy God will show himself holy by his righteousness. Isaiah 9.7 says, Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And Jeremiah 9.24 says, But let him who boasts, boast about this, that he understands and knows me, relational, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, righteousness on the earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. So hunger and thirst for righteousness is to desperately desire God and his foundational nature. It's to have a hunger and a thirst for him. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is to hunger and thirst for him. It's not to hunger and thirst for a level of performance that we think somehow will make us acceptable to him. That's already been satisfied. That, that need's already been met in the cross. Our righteousness is filthy rags, remember? Of our righteousness, the scripture says, none is righteous. No, not one. Romans 3.10 You've been a Christian as long as me. Somewhere along the line, you had to memorize that verse, right? Isaiah 40, uh, 64, 6 says, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. This fourth beatitude has nothing whatsoever to do with an elevated level of Christian performance. It's not our own uh, improved level of righteousness that we hunger and thirst for. Are you hungering and thirsting for filthy rags? <laughs> I'm not either. It's not our good works. It can't be. We have no righteousness. Remember, we're poor in spirit. We come bankrupt to the table that he has everything on already. The best we have to offer is nothing. It has to be something else. We're the ardently crave, eagerly desire, painfully wait to be supernaturally synchronized and aligned with God's divine nature. I think that's the meaning of this text. Let me say that again. To hunger and thirst for righteousness means that we are to ardently crave, eagerly desire, and painfully want to be supernaturally synchronized and aligned with God's divine nature. We have a hunger and thirst for him and for who he is. Here's some good news. This internal drive to ardently crave, eagerly desire, and painfully want, it comes, it comes already installed by the manufacturer. It's standard equipment. God created us with this hunger and thirst for him. We have it built into the very fiber of our being. As newborn babies, moments from the womb, we instinctively seek to feed our hunger and to satisfy our thirst. Just as newborn babes crave their mother's milk, we as reborn babes crave the eternal. 
we live with an eye toward heaven and desire the manifest presence of God. This world, this world's not our home. We are aliens and exiles in this world. I can remember after one conference that I hosted years ago with Sean Boltz. You guys ever hear of Sean Boltz? He's a young man, extraordinarily gifted prophetically. He came to our church and he was sharing his experiences in the heavenly realm when he would go to heaven. And when it was over, we went out and grabbed a bite to eat and I said, Sean, you have ruined me. Listening to your stories put a desire in my heart. I will never ever be satisfied with anything less than that. You've ruined me. Oh, that we would all be ruined. That we would have such a desire for him, for his presence, for the interaction of heaven in our lives, that we would be ruined too. You know, rice will satisfy you until you've had risotto, right? <laughs> Hamburger will satisfy you until you had steak. A $5 bottle of wine will satisfy you until you had a $30 bottle of wine. I don't usually have anything more expensive than a $30 bottle of wine. <laughs> Folgers Instant Coffee is fine until you've had your first Starbucks latte. The natural realm will satisfy you until you've tasted the supernatural realm. The world satisfies until you've experienced God. So how's your appetite? How hungry are you? How thirsty are you? What's feeding that hunger? There's lots of substitutes out there. There's lots of junk food out there, in the natural and in the spiritual realm. What are you feeding on? I'm one of four siblings. Of the four kids, there are two who are passive and two who are passionate. Guess which side I fall on? <laughs> My brother Ricky and I were the passionate ones. We have God-given passions built into both of us. I believe we were designed that way. My passions are different than his. My passions have been after the presence and the power of God. His passions have been more in the competitive realm. Any kind of sports. He has amazing hand-eye coordination. Just extraordinarily skilled with it. We've both found ways to satisfy our passions. How are you satisfying yours? There are counterfeits out there. Power is a counterfeit. Authority is a counterfeit. Success is a counterfeit. Listen to me. Ministry is a counterfeit to satisfy that hunger for God and God alone. And it's one of the most deceptive counterfeits because it looks so close to the real thing. Positions, comfort, fame, wealth. Again, they're like junk food. They never truly nourish. And they soon leave you hungry again. So what are you hungry for? Is it being satisfied? If not, maybe it's time to feed on something new. Jesus promised. In this beatitude, he promised that if you hunger and thirst, that you'll be satisfied. The NIV says filled. The New American Standard says satisfied. The Amplified says that you'll be completely satisfied. How awesome would that be, to be completely satisfied? And it's a strange feeling that both satisfies and keeps us hungering for more. 
That's how it is when you're in love. That's how, that's how it is with relationship. When Nadine and I first fell in love, we'd spend all day together, right? Morning to night. Then I'd go home, and as soon as I'd go home, what's the first thing I did? I'd pick, her up, pick up the phone, I'd call her on the phone. We'd talk, all, we'd talk for hours on the phone about what we did all day together. <laughs> and I'd say, you hang up. She says, no, you hang up first. <laughs> I said, no, you hang up. No, you hang up first. Because we were in love. There was a hunger, there was an appetite, there was a passionate desire that when it was satisfied only left us hungry for more. That's what it's supposed to be like with him. That's what it's like for him. Let me tell you just personally that God's really good at feeding that hunger. Over the last few years, I have desperately cried out for more of God. I have passionately cried out for more intimate relationship with Him. Specifically, I have asked God, I've asked God repeatedly to give me eyes that see and ears that hear. I went through a season of life where I had ridiculous, unearned, unmerited, undeserved favor with prophetic ministers. Every big name in the prophetic movement came through our doors. And I think there was lots of reasons why God did it, but one of the benefits of it is that they ruined me. They put in me an appetite for more God, a desire for more God. I'm no big shot. I'm, I'm nobody who's specially anointed in any kind of way. I haven't been on TV. I don't have books and tapes. and I've never been in Charisma Magazine. Heck, I've never even anything on the Elijah List published. I'm a normal guy, just like you. But listening to their stories ruined me, provoked me to jealousy in the holiest of ways. And what it did for me, the, the way I responded to this hunger that was put inside of me, is I began to cry out for more. And I tell you what, God is good. I cried out for more of Him. My appetite for Him grew exponentially. And He satisfied me. Exceedingly and abundantly, he satisfied me more than I ever could have hoped or imagined. Guys, I have had hundreds, without exaggerations, I have had hundreds of supernatural experiences in the last couple of years. God has enlarged the place of my tent. He has stretched my tent curtain wide. He's increased my capacity for him. And then he filled that capacity to overflowing, just like it says here in the Beatitudes. Now, God's no respecter of persons. What drove me to him is I watched these guys, and I seen the amazing things that God did in their lives, knowing that God's no respecter of persons. I would say, I, that's how I pray, God, you're no respecter of persons. Do for me what you did for them. And he said, yes, <laughs> and he did it. Now, I'm not equating myself to them. I'm not saying I'm the same as them. But God's interacted with me at a profoundly more significant level than I had ever hoped for, than I ever experienced before. And he'll do that for you. I think one of the main reasons why he decided to do that in me is that I could be a testimony to every other average normal human person out there and say, look, he could do it with me. 
If he can open these eyes, if he can let me experience heaven, man, you're better than me. He'll do it in you too. I want you to know that today. Don't be too quickly satisfied. Don't let that hunger be too easily satisfied. Hunger and thirst for more. Because he'll do it. I know he'll do it because he did it for me. He'll do it for you too. There is more God. You've barely scratched the surface to who he is. He's got more. He's got so much more. Your best days in your relationship with him are ahead. They're not behind you. So kingdom citizens are characterized by being poor in spirit. They're humble. They're characterized by being mournful. They're broken. And by being meek, they're submissive. They're also characterized by the fact that they hunger and thirst for righteousness. They passionately desire eternity. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness ardently crave, eagerly desire, painfully want to be supernaturally synchronized and aligned with God and His divine nature. To us, Scripture promises, to us belongs the kingdom of heaven, the comfort of God. We inherit the earth and we will be satisfied. Next week we'll look at another great text from these amazing Beatitudes, which Matthew 5, 7, which are blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for my friends. I thank you for these amazing people. Lord, they are amazing. Father, I pray for them. I ask that beginning today, right now, that you would supercharge their hunger and their thirst for you. Lord, I pray that you would enlarge the place of their tent, that you would increase their appetite. And then, Lord, I ask that you would rock their world. I ask that you would show up in ways and do God-sized things in their lives that would blow their mind. Lord, I pray that you would increase their appetite for eternity, their desire for heaven. Lord, specifically, I pray for my friends that you give them eyes that see and ears that hear. Lord, I pray that you would open the heavens above them and then take them to the heavens. That they would experience you. I pray that you would give them a taste now of what eternity is going to look like later. Do it, Lord. I pray for my friends who I ask for myself that they would live supernatural lives in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that they would never, ever be satisfied with anything less. And Lord, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. I love you guys. Have an awesome Sunday.